Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. And welcome back to the Petronas Podcast. This is episode 87 of the Petronas Podcast, another special treat for listeners. Um, today is uh, Wednesday, June 21st, 2023. It is the longest day of the year, and um, we've had some actually had some awesome summer weather in Denver, so that's been exciting. But my name is Trisha Curtis. I am the host of the Petronas Podcast. Really looking forward to you guys listening to this today. This is Liberty Frack Part 2, my special guest, Roy Ani, who's the Director of Research and Development at Liberty Energy. So we recorded this in his offices. If you listen, you, you need to listen to last week's episode, episode 86, because this is part one. This is one of the best conversations and um, best talks you're going to hear on frack, um, especially electric frack and the evolution of frack from tier two, the engine side from tier two to tier four to dual fuel to now with the electric frack fleets going on. So I'll, I'll, I'll recap what we're going to talk about in, in just a little bit. But with that being said, this was that, and that was recorded on May 25th. Fantastic conversation. Um, reviews have really been great, folks. Um, so with that being said, today is June 21st, 2023, and holy crap, um, the world, uh, there's a lot going on in the world. If you are not paying attention to China, um, you're really sort of missing something. And so, you know, I know, you know, for, for clients of mine and for people who listen, I spend a lot of time working on China. The reason I'm keeping this short um, is for one of those reasons, because I'm spending a lot of time on the topic. Um, so a few big headlines right now. We've got WTI at 72.53. Um, we have recovered a little bit there. We've got Brent at 77, um, just over 77 bucks. Uh, definitely some recovery there. Henry Hub at 259. That's GTF at 11.82. We're looking at the 30-year mortgage at about 690. <clears throat> it, it has come down from those those highs we saw well over 7%, but it's still at 690. So really high. We will be getting into housing stuff. So some very interesting stuff going on the housing front. And the 10-year yield is at 3.7725. So, you know, we the few big things I want to cover is, you know, the OPEC and IEA came out last week um, with their information. If you are feeling um, a little bit jarred and mixed and feel like you have whiplash with regards to oil, um, oil demand and oil prices and thinking things haven't quite matched up and that the bulls are saying, hey, it's all going to get better in the second half, um, it, you're not the only one. This is getting really, really dicey in terms of, oh, we're we going into recession. Are we not going to recession? What are oil prices actually baking in? And you have both the OPEC and the IEA pretty bullish on, really just bullish on Chinese demand outlook. So they're baking in, you know, their bullish outlooks for the second half of this year are largely premised on Chinese demand growth. Now, if you actually... <clears throat> saw and read through in the IEA's um, oil market report from last month, what it and which was released last week, it actually said that um, oil demand ha from China had really rebounded significantly and total oil demand was over 16 million barrels a day as of late. That I have a hard time. I mean, that may be true, but that means there's other softness in the global oil market or there's just so much supply. Otherwise, we wouldn't see this pressure on prices. Um, we are definitely still seeing continued softness in the contracted volumes for WTI, but we're not seeing that as much for Brent. So something's out of whack here and you can't. What I'm hearing from the bull side from everybody who's baking on the second half recovery story is that, oh, this is the short sellers and everything. The problem is the reason you have short selling and the reason people bet on um, short selling is because they see the recession coming and that's what they're betting on. So not saying they're necessarily right um, because traders can get it wrong, but it means they there's a reason they're doing this. They're not just doing it for kicks and giggles. 
So that being said, I have never seen, I mean, I'm, we're, you're really starting to see a divergence in terms of people within the oil and gas industry in terms of, I mean, I mentioned last week, um, I, I will have forthcoming podcasts with Carl Rove and Harold Hamm. And, you know, Harold Hamm mentioned at the uh, Petroleum Alliance meet, the Oklahoma Petroleum Alliance meeting um, two weekends ago, he mentioned that uh, the, the oil industry had been really bullish on oil prices, but in the near term, in the next couple of years, they've kind of come around in saying that the it's not going to be as bullish. I haven't, I'm, I'm seeing a pretty big divergence with that still right now between operators and service companies in terms of the outlook on that, that bullish demand. And I think for some service companies, they're still feeling that they're still feeling pretty bullish about that. So I do think there's, you know, a tale of two stories for oil right now. Um, and we have to be careful with that. And we also have to be really cognizant of how much production is on the market. So we did see in OPEC production figures that the Saudis had cut output significantly. So that's great. But if they had cut output um, in, in under 10 million barrels a day, and they had the significant output cut in May, we should have seen some of this material reflected in oil prices, um, and we haven't. So that th I have a lot of question marks in terms of what's going on with traders um, and whether or not the fundamentals are being baked in here. And, and then the China side, so there's a lot of aspects of China that we have to cover. Um, one of them is just that the data and the economic data. So we've talked about this before. If you cover anything on China, if you have to do this for a living, you'll realize that it's very hard to get any good data on China. So, um, but what you do hear overwhelmingly is bad economic data and the market is not happy with it. So you can't really look at Chinese stocks. Chinese stocks are not a store of value. There's very little, any, I mean, they don't have SEC filings like we do. Um, so you don't have lots of data behind these companies. These, these could be shells of companies. So when you're, if you're trading uh, Chinese stocks or, or Hong Kong stocks, that is a trade. You're not, you're not holding these for a store of value. Um, and, you know, the zero COVID band-aid was ripped off. Everyone was super excited overwhelmingly that China was going to reopen and save the global, oil, global market and global oil market. And they just haven't seen that, haven't seen the recovery. Now this week and previous weeks, we've seen lots of little bits of dabbling from the, um, from the, government, uh, the Chinese government, the Chinese communist government of saying, hey, we are going to, um, we're going to reduce interest rates. We're going to do various things to help incentivize the economy. Unfortunately, a lot of these measures this past week have not lived up to expectations and the market didn't react as strongly. And part of that's because they have a lot of debt, massive, massive local local government debt. And you can't just keep spurring. I mean, how they've got themselves out of these situations before is just spend a lot of money infrastructure spending. Well, you already had this big housing problem, which hasn't been resolved. So what you did, what the government did was restrict people from buying housing, put new restrictions up and make it more difficult. So people weren't buying multiple homes and speculating. And that has reduced home home buying. So there's a lot of, there's big problems within the system of people not feeling comfortable enough to buy. And I think that's something that's not being well understood is that the consumer confidence within China just isn't there. So something's off. And that makes sense given that the very little data, we get very, very little data out of China, very little data that's not curated and crafted. And increasingly there's tons of laws and restrictions going and being put into place to prevent actual data, the little bit of data that we had before is actually being further restricted. So keep that all in mind when you're thinking about China and you're thinking about the health of China and what that means for the global economy and what that means for oil prices. Okay, so moving on from oil prices just for a little bit for China, we have to talk about Biden, Blinken, and China. Um, so if you if you didn't know, last weekend, um, Secretary Blinken went, went, to, uh, went to China and um, this was if you're following any Chinese, you know, if you're following any Chinese podcast or anything, even sort of the amateur folks or the folks that are they're covering this, even the guys probably on the little the left of the spectrum covering China are pretty negative on the Biden administration for how they've handled this. Because what happened was Biden and Blinken really wanted it. They wanted to resume talks and 
Biden has, if you notice, a, a month or so ago, there was talks about how this, we, you know, the re relationship between China was going to get better. All you hear about on the stock market, if you're watching Bloomberg or CNBC or anything, you hear about this, you know, this very cold relationship between the U.S. and China um, and the high tensions. And even Henry Kissinger just turned 100. He was interviewed on Bloomberg. I listened to that last night. It was actually a really good interview. And at the very end, they really talked about China. And he asked, the interviewer asked if, if he believed that we were on course for war, you know, kinetic war with China. And he said at the trajectory we're on, yes, he believed there would be war. But he uh, also said that he was, you know, advising both sides to actually talk. So there is an impetus to talk. The problem is, is that, and the reason Biden, the Biden administration is getting criticism and should, a lot of criticism, is that they didn't get anything out of this. So what China typically does is they criticize the U.S. and then they basically make the U.S. do things to just get just talk. So they basically say you have to do X, Y, Z in order for us to even have a discussion. And then you can come over here and have a discussion. And one of those things that they asked for was that to not release the, re the balloon report. Now, some of that's already been leaked because of the hacking that we saw a, a few months ago by that young man in the military. So some of that's already been leaked. Um, but a couple issues have come up that are pretty big that the Biden administration keeps deflecting on. And there's some serious stuff. I mean, the Biden administration, they're deflecting on everything, whether it's the Hunter Biden stuff or whether it's Cuba um, and China. Um, sounds a little bit like the Cuban Missile Crisis um, back in the day, or whether it's, um, it, it's with uh, China in the balloon report. And so China has basically asked the Biden administration not to re release the balloon report or they would get mad. And um, so they haven't released it yet. It's probably going to get out there. It's probably going to get leaked. And that yet you have Biden going out there and saying there was two trailer loads of equipment on there. And what's been linked is we know that there was a lot there was equipment to um, basically. Uh, spying intel equipment. Um, Xi Jinping has denied this. And that's, it's not, I mean, and Biden has said this, that Xi Jinping didn't really know about it. Well, that's really actually pretty embarrassing. Um, if the leader of the Communist Party and also the, the leader of the military of China does not know about a major spy balloon effort um, orchestrated this, that happens to fly over the U.S. So it doesn't matter. He would have known. He did know. Um, and the fact that Biden is covering for them is a really serious, there's serious, serious implications for that. Um, and then what happened was that, so Biden speaks very positively about the, the meeting that Blinken had um, in China over the weekend. He wasn't necessarily going to meet Xi Jinping, but he ended up meeting with him. Um, there was lots of talks. Um, so not necessarily moving the needle on anything, but basically just starting talks. So they did that. Biden's bragging about it. Um, he apparently was doing fundraising or, or campaigning um, in California. And there was some stuff that came out of that, that of how positive he was on these on, on these Blinken conversations. And that that article, so there was an article on Bloomberg from um, from the 19th, June 19th, quote, Biden sees progress with China after Blinken meets with Xi. And it says, U.S. president says his secretary of state, quote, did a hell of a job. And, it, and then says, world's two largest economies look to stabilize relations. This is just, this is July 19th. Um, and then it goes in. So he says, uh, Biden responded that he said, quote, I don't feel, you know, it's been made, that progress has been made. So very, a little, very cocky of a response for just a single meeting. Um, and then he apparently in these, um, in this, in this meeting in California, he called Xi a dictator and the response by China was pretty negative. So there, uh, they came out and had a, a response to that. And this is a very, very typical response as they get, you know, China gets really angry. You know, we don't have the same response as if, if they call us or somebody a name. We don't do that same response, but they do this. So it's a very classic uh, Chinese maneuvering of basically forcing the Biden administration, pushing them not to release the balloon report, and then getting mad at them if they, you know, on, on this name front, um, even while the administration is trying to have relations. And 
they have not opened up the channels on the, they didn't agree to open up communications on the military side. So that's really concerning and is telling. And there are reasons why, you know, two countries, major military powers would actually want to have conversations, at least a dialogue. That being said, um, this, it really does show that the Biden administration, despite the, the trade sanctions and everything that they've continued with Trump and the stuff on chips, that they are softening their stance to China, which is a huge, huge problem. And the reason I say that is because, you know, I'm critical of that on many, many fronts, because I think people are are not appreciating how serious this threat of China is. Um, the thing with Cuba is really serious because China has come out and said, or we, sorry, the Wall Street Journal and other, other reports have come out and talked about um, China having increased relationships with Cuba and looking to enhance military ties with Cuba and having um, spying and intel capabilities within Cuba. This came out, the Biden administration initially denied it, and then they came out and said, oh, this was going on during the Trump administration. And like many things they've done, they've just deflected and said, well, this was Trump's problem and we inherited it, um, which is just not what you do. You, you're president now, so you have to own this situation. So that's really serious because it's very, very close to the U.S. So when you take the Cuba situation in, in couple that with the balloon situation and this spying stuff, and then you then you layer on the TikTok um, and the ability to pull that information, how much information they can pull um, on, on, the, on the average U.S. person and um, when they're on these apps and everything, it, collectively, there's a a lot of there's a lot of data and information there um, that helps China know as much as they possibly can about the American populace. So that's really concerning, and it's something to keep paying attention to. And it's something that this, uh, you know, the bipartisan stuff on China. I, I am kind of surprised that we are seeing this this sort of softish, more dovish stance on on China from the Biden administration. I think uh, the folks who are recommending recommending this, this is clearly not the wrong, the right way to go. Um, and you know, there there's also some, you know, I take this really, really seriously because if you are looking, you know, following the human rights abuses within China, they are directly correlated to autos and to ESG. Um, and to um, the energy transition. And so Sheffield University, I know I speak about this in presentation stuff, but and uh, it's really important to follow this. Sheffield University has put out some, some new reports are called evidence papers, really great documents on several documents on all this evidence of the human rights abuses of forced labor abuses within the province of Xinjiang and really calling out companies and anyone who has ex supply chain exposure to to China, that the only way, you, I mean, if you have any supply chain exposure to China, you're at risk of this, of having forced labor in your system, but particularly autos and tomato and tomatoes, tomato paste, cotton, all this stuff, and um, batteries, wind, and solar, which almost exclusively come from the province of Xinjiang. And the response by companies is often, oh my gosh, we can't fix our supply chains, it's too hard. And the, the reason I criticize the Biden administration on this is because we did implement policies to not be importing stuff from Xinjiang, although those have not been implemented because we've been taking stuff from Xinjiang, including cotton. And almost all of that, I mean, there are direct correlations to cotton picking and forced labor. Um, and so the the Chinese government has actually put together strategies and incentives for businesses, especially heavy industry, to move to the province of Xinjiang um, and offered, and they have, you know, very cheap coal, very cheap power, very all these incentives, and they have uh, very, very low cost to free to force labor uh, to supplement these businesses. So there's a huge incentive, um, and there th there's meaning behind this, especially if you look through, at through these evidence paper at Sheffield, is that China has experienced rising labor costs, and low labor costs have been one of the big reasons why China has been so attractive for so many businesses. Um, I did think it was also very interesting that, you know, if you looked at, if you're looking at the crazy rise in NVIDIA and these tech stocks, 
Um, I mean, NVIDIA is trading at 30 times, uh, 30 times sales right now. Forget earnings. It's 30 times actual sales. Um, but there's been a big flip between, so tons of ESG funds have funneled into NVIDIA um, and ESG funds were really big on Tesla. And I find that fascinating of, you know, Elon Musk is a unique individual in and of himself, but Tesla, you know, is an electric you know, a vehicle company. Um, but Tesla just opened a factory, you know, they in a room chi, or actually, sorry, a showroom in a room chi, and they do have manufacturing within the province of Xinjiang. That op and um, opening up a, a, a showroom in a room chi earlier this year in January was basically a big statement to the uh, the Communist Party of saying, hey, we're, we're in it with you. Um, and so the, their supply chains are riddled with. Um, riddled with supply chain abuse, riddled with uh, human rights abuses, including forced labor or low cost or free and cheap forced labor and very high. I mean, anything that's, if you're wind and solar, which almost all of China's wind and solar um, manufacturing is being done in the province of Xinjiang, almost all of the world's solar or photovoltaic photovoltaics are coming from the province of Xinjiang. So if you're getting the stuff from them, you are getting the, the actual life cycle emissions is horrible. The CO2 footprint is awful, but it is being made most likely with, with free to forced labor, hence why it's so damn cheap. So really, really important um, and to, to pay attention to this problem is not going away. It needs to be elevated. It needs to be talked about and it needs to be understood. And there's really no excuse. Um, so that's all extremely serious. So keep that in your back pocket. And, and just the, the point I'm making on that is that the Biden administration has not, has said, uh, we're getting imports now, increasingly, for our solar panels, we're getting them from Malaysia and Vietnam and other countries. They're not making those. They didn't, these, they didn't develop supply chain, they didn't develop capacity to make uh, solar panels overnight and, and make all this stuff. So they're getting it from China and they're just putting the sticker on it. And the Biden administration, the Congress has said they want to ban that and the Biden administration has said no, he'd veto that. That's a really, really big problem that you are, I mean, that's, that's opposite of ESG. That in the name of we want to have solar panels so bad that we're willing to take them from a, a direct threat to the US, but we're also willing to take them that we know they're made with forced labor and human rights abuses is just absolutely insane. It needs to be talked about. And it's also a horribly inefficient form of energy. Um, so, you know, we need to be we need to be cutting off anything exposure from China for absolutely for for solar panels um, and wind power as well. And that does push companies to divest out of that area and go to other places. And we're already seeing that take place right now. So if you really want your supply chain, if you really want wind and solar power, which are not very good forms of energy, but if you really want them um, out of China, when you divest out of these places, companies that want to make money on this, they have to push it elsewhere. And then we start seeing that the cost goes up because we it's not actually made. I mean, they have very low cost because it is made with forced labor. So serious consequences that from the whole supply chain perspective. Okay, and lastly, um, I know that was a long rant on China, had to be done. Um, so home builder sentiment is way up. And this is kind of crazy given that we've seen um, the very high interest rates, but every time interest rates come down a little bit and interest rates home, like what you pay for a mortgage is not directly tied to what to federal what the Fed is doing. It is in terms of the signaling and then what the 10 year is doing. So it's more directly correlated to the 10 year yield, which is why I talk about that on this podcast and talk about it with clients. So that's real. Um, but what's happening is that every time there's a drop, you know, every time there's a sentiment shift is that, and we drop mortgage rates is that the buying goes up. And so buying has just been crazy. And part, this is the real sticky problem that's going on with the Fed is that shelter costs are extremely high still. So when you think about inflation overall and you think about, okay, well, inflation has come down, it's under 5%. That's just the rate of price increases now. 
So the 10% in food inflation that we had before, we had that. And those prices haven't come down. Just the rate of in, we're still seeing price increases. And that's, you see that at the grocery store. Think about two years ago, what the cost of, of uh, olive oil was, what the cost of a jar of peanut butter was, what the cost of eggs were. You were paying so much more for it now. And that is really, really problematic. And that's what the Fed is talking about. When Jerome Powell was, was on the Hill today, he was talking to Congress and he re reiterated the same thing he did with his pause that he just did with the, the Fed's pause that I've talked about is that, hey, inflation is, um, is still sticky and it's high and we have to take it down. Why they didn't increase interest rates before is beyond me. It makes no sense. It's created a lot of confusion in the market. And you know what? The problem is this, uh, Jerome Powell has a big problem and he is trying to navigate the political side of this. And unfortunately, it's just not, it's not working because the political side has put so much stimulus in the market. So you have, we, we have all these government expenditures, which are like $2 trillion a year. That's stimulus that's going to the system and it's inflationary. The one thing that is going to start helping is that students are going to have to start, you know, student loan payments are going to have to resume within two months. That is huge. That is a lot of money that's going to be pulled out of the system. So you can, you know, if you're looking for headwinds potentially in earnings or retail, especially retail, that's, that is it. That's one of them. Um, but that means that the, the Fed has all these headwinds. And we saw that UK inflation um, came out at 8.7%. It was ex just, this was a couple of days ago. It was expected to be 8.4%. That's, it, you know, the fact that it's just near, still near 10% is really high, much higher than ours, but high, very, very high. Um, and the Bank of England, I mean, we saw the European Central Bank has raised rates. We saw Canada has raised rates unexpectedly. So the fact that the Fed is sort of behind the curve in this and raising rates and they just want to pause and, and see what happens and hope everything gets better, it's not going to get better. In, in fact, it's probably going to, it's going to make that inflation a little probably a little more crunch and stickier, which, and they say they're going to raise rates and they're going to have to raise rates at least two more times, but they may end up having to raise them higher because um, you just have to get rid of this sticky inflation, um, which, which, you know, they may or may not do, which will be problematic for the economy. But that being said is that the UK and um, the EU, or at least the UK directly talks about government expenditures. And so when you hear commentary about UK inflation and what the government is doing, you hear them talked about together and you don't hear that in the US because no, it's really uncomfortable to talk about and Jerome Powell doesn't want to talk about, but it's, it's really serious. If the government is spending a lot of money and you are trying to raise interest rates and cool off that spending, the government is not helping you. And so in the UK, they're talking about that they're putting subsidies for mortgage payments because unlike they're unlike the US, the rest of the world, their, their mortgages are basically on two year or five years. And so when they roll over, they're getting these higher payments and the government government is is putting out these incentives to help help folks with that the the payments well that's just inflationary and it's it's doing the opposite of what the the uh bank of england is trying to do with raising rates and cooling off the economy so that's a big problem if we're not addressing that ourselves and that hey the you know the fed is raising rates but we still have all this money being spent into the system and these this is real i mean entitlement programs increased government spending all of this prevents you know, it, this keeps people spending and it's just the, the, a simple balancing act. The real thing that no one wants to talk about is unemployment. Um, and that's the unemployment has to rise because people have to lose jobs to really, really curtail spending is that they have to feel, you know, a change in the system. And so the, the Fed is also very uncomfortable talking about that. They talk about, oh, we can have a soft landing and it won't be, a, it won't be, you know, recession, but maybe not a big recession. And that will go, you know, because they, 
the employment sector, because it's so tight right now and it's been so sticky, is that maybe this is good, is that we won't have, instead of having rising unemployment, you know, above 5%, we'll just have the job, the vacancies come off. Um, and the problem is when you have all these government, government subsidies still in the system, especially the employee retention tax credit that everyone got, you are going to delay the, the sort of layoffs that we, we would see in the, in the regular overall service sector. And the service sector cooling off is going to have to be when the average person, you know, slows down their vacation habits, slows down their driving, slows down their, their spending and their day-to-day -day stuff. And that's probably going to become from those job losses. So it's a really, really tricky picture right now, um, especially for the Fed. And they're really the only tool they have is raising rates and increasing unemployment. And that's very uncomfortable for people. So with that, folks, um, I know that was long-winded. I appreciate you guys taking a listen and hope you enjoyed it. Um, this is Liberty Energy, um, Liberty Frack Part 2. This is an awesome conversation with Rory Ani. We get into the nerdy aspects of, you know, the hybrid Digi Prime, what it actually is, when Liberty actually released these, uh, the, how they released these suite of products, how they're being released right now, um, and how they actually got into, how they put them into, um, you know, from idea into fruition. We get into the, we end the end the podcast talking about the Quiet Frack Fleet um, and how this came, the impetus um, behind this and how this came about. So thank you guys so much for listening. Talk to you soon, folks. Bye. If you could walk through where we, from June of 2021 on your investor day to now on these suite, where, where's the movement, where are we thinking, and what is a hybrid DigiPrime? Yeah, so June of 2021. Also well, reminds me of Transformers. Yeah, so there you go. Optimus Prime and, yeah. Yeah, there you go. June of 21, we had, uh, we had our investor day, and that was, we had a, a quintuplex. Um, it was really our proof of concept uh, first DigiFrac pump. And we had, we took it out. We ran it on diesel generation, and just proved out the concept that this could work. And it's it's a departure from conventional electric. So most of the electric uh, frac pumps out there have a single big motor hooked onto a pump. Our technology, again, wanting to have um, kind of redundancy in the system has 10 electric motors hooked to each pump. So if one electric motor fails, well, we'll turn the other nine up a little bit. And that was, you know, one of the important um, features we, we saw of the technology that we developed. So over the last couple of years, we've, we've commercialized that pump. We've invested in uh, natural gas reciprocating gen sets and those, even that transition is I think kind of interesting because these are engines that were only approved for uh, basically fixed stationary they were approved for power generation and they were approved right. for gas compression but they weren't pro approved for non-road mobile right and so part of this uh, evolution was getting these engines into be EPA certified for a non-road mobile application and <clears throat> that it's no small task either. That absolutely, it, it's 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 millions of dollars to do these tests, and the EPA is, you know, they they spend a lot of time making sure that what you put out there is meeting the standards that they set out. So that was that was a hurdle. We we've kind of overcome, you know, both of those hurdles, and now we have uh, fleets out there. Um, we have one fleet in West Texas running that is. Well, it's just that we're generating power on site using gas reciprocating engines and we're consuming it with our electric motors. And so that's awesome. And I mean, that's the real, it's, it's fully functioning the way it, it was intended to function, or that 
we've gone down that direction. And when people think of like, that's, that's it. Yeah. And, and it's, it's also exciting because, because, you know, we're, we're electrifying the site with, um, with our genset. And so that has the kind of knock on effect of being able to electrify everything on site. So we can plug in. Access to power is really nice to just have it readily available and yeah, so, so you're already generating power using the most efficient uh, natural gas engines in the world, and you're able to uh, put power up everything from wireline to the frac vent to the sand right. to the blenders. Everything is electrified, and so it really is kind of a holistic approach to providing uh, electricity on site for the entire suite of equipment there. The next iteration of that what we call digiprime was to take that same family of natural gas engine and instead of using it to generate electricity and then consuming that electricity with a with an electric pump we use it basically couple it to the transmission like we do with a tier four tier two engine it's we, we couple the end the uh the engine to the transmission and it of course drives the pump and so now we we kind of have a um, well a traditional frack pump that's got a natural gas engine right um, but the technical challenge of that is these engines weren't designed to take loads quickly they're designed for electrical generation. And with electrical generation, you can absolutely just, what you do is you match up, match your uh, demand curve to the ability of the engine to take the load. We didn't have that luxury. When we want to, when we're at pumping at 12,500 PSI, we want to shift from second to third gear. That happens right. in a heartbeat. And, and so that fast transition we had to develop a, a system to preload that engine and give it, let it spool up slowly to that level and then take the load off and introduce it on, on basically we take it off one side of the crankshaft and introduce it on the other. And so the way we did that was by putting in a, a generator, hooking a generator to the front of the crankshaft. We've got the transmission and the pump hooked to the back of the crankshaft and we we preload the engine with the generator and then we shut it off. And so that that's the technical that that was the biggest technical hurdle to get these engines. Yeah, it's brilliant. And it makes a ton it makes a ton of sense because I think that's the kind of that that was a, a missing component that I think a lot of folks don't understand is that it just doesn't, you can't just bring all these technologies together and you guys have solved that. Is that what you call them, the hybrid DigiPrime? Yeah. Okay. And so, is that in application? Uh, we are just finishing uh, the first commercial unit right now. Okay. The, the first pump, we, we had it uh, at the SPE and uh, Pratt Conference and we took it back and, and tore it down and made some changes and now it's coming back together beyond the test stand here in about two weeks. But the, the nice thing about that is again both Digi, Digi Prime, our whole Digi Suite uses the same high efficiency natural gas recip engine. Right. But because we put that generator on the front, we can also electrify the whole site with the Digi Prime suite. So all all the Digi uh, suite or Digi fleets can can electrify the entire site, um, and we have 
we have kind of uh, I don't know. It's kind of like Tetris. We can we can fit yeah. the right yeah. right uh, mix of of engines, pumps, uh, fit them together for our customers' needs. And I'm. Um, I mean, it makes, to me, I mean, from a logistics standpoint and a, a listening to a ton of other earnings calls, the investments in that gas um, are, I mean, they're strong. It doesn't matter who you were listening, a suite of slug of operators um, and service companies, everybody's leaning pretty hard into that gas, which makes the, um, you know, your siren purchase and then the whole um, Liberty, uh, the, the LPI, um, make that make, sorry, okay. Liberty Power Innovation. Sorry, a lot of Liberty names. Liberty Power Innovations. That makes a lot. It, coupling it all together to make sure you actually have the gas um, and and have that you know the feed in there makes a ton of sense. The market, uh, I don't know if they fully appreciate that because you have so much noise on the energy transition and a lot of stuff against natural gas, um, especially the stuff that came out of the G7 um, and the energy communique and everything on that gas. So I found it very interesting that that's, though that communication was coming out from the G7. At the same time, these earnings calls were coming out, which were extremely bullish on that gas, and which is also interesting because and important for people to realize is that we have very low natural gas prices. We know we may not always have very low natural gas prices, but we also know how we produce so much of it here that um, it's not something that's unhedgeable or it's not something, to me, it doesn't seem unreasonable that you would headlong into net gas because of how much we produce, how much associated gas we produce, and then obviously the field gas side that, you know, I believe techno, you know, from a technological standpoint, the ability to clean that up quickly and advancements on that is probably, you know, field gas is probably huge. Um, but I was also thinking, you know, a little forward thinking, and this was mentioned a little bit in your earnings call of the uh, more industrial applications are deploying this or like if people need, others need your power. Um, if you're producing all this power, um, it doesn't have to be just for frack. I mean, right? I mean, there's some potential implications for power generation that could be used for other things. Yeah, once you have these engines, uh, non-notable certified and mounted on a truck, everywhere that needs power. You can just drive over and fire them up and and you can produce. They're, they're about two and a half megawatts per trailer. So if you need 10 megawatts, you bring in four trailers and you could definitely generate power anywhere. And I mean, is the, I was just thinking, the, so the evolution of this, part of it, when I'm thinking of field gas, in places that when we were first drilling, we didn't have a lot of field gas, we, didn't, we had, gas production, but not the volumes that you need for something like this. Um, so, you know, you w it would have been, obviously we were flaring a ton in North Dakota. Um, we still flare in certain parts, but a lot of flaring's been pretty quelled. Um, so this helps on the flaring side if you have field gas. But before when we first, when the business first started 10 years ago, it's not like we had as much, nearly as much gas as we do now. So the whole field gas initiative of I have this readily available Yes, we have gas here, but I'm still thinking when you're fracking at some location, that means that in order to get that field gas easily available, people near you have to be producing and it has to not have a home. Um, so that means that there have to be people actively drilling and completing wells near you without ample you know, pipeline infrastructure where they're selling that into market. Um, so that's a whole nerdy market niche of understanding who's doing what, where, and where do you have, you know, Field gas that's not, doesn't have a home. Well, and, and it's it's the quantity of of fuel that we use is is well, it's significant. So that's the that's the third leg of that. Is it nearby? Is it available? And is do you have enough of it? Um, 
you know, and so when you had, uh, you know, tier, tier two dual fuel in the early days, or even now the tier four dual fuel, you can say, all right, how much fuel do you have? Uh, we can we can give you uh, 250,000 standard cubic feet an hour. Okay, well, that'll that'll run our entire one entire tier four fleet, but that won't run a natural gas, you know, 100% natural gas reset fleet. And so that's a lot to it. You said 250,000 feet. It's a lot of gas. Yeah, no, it's it, and and that's where most of the, you know, when we talk about using field gas, it ha, it usually usually is a uh, a production line in some places, you know, you can actually get tap tap a, a natural gas uh, line and, and get that, but usually it's a collection from a, a number of wells where you have right. large contigu- contiguous acres that they've put in this whole big uh, high pressure gas line to get that gas back to a treatment facility and then treat it and ship it on. So we that's oh, so what, you're tapping into that. You're not yeah. tapping into this. Is, otherwise, would have been flared. We can. Um, so it's with with uh, dual fuel with some of the smaller users you know where we could just tailor we'll take whatever you can get right but the the there's you know there's just the flare capture just isn't enough gas to run does the siren purchase help with any of that a little bit first i'm guessing the scale has to be just right but smaller sort of makeshift solutions on the cng on like it's not next to me, but it's pretty close, and I just need to get that CNG to me. There's absolutely um, some some places where that works pretty well, uh, or or could potentially work pretty well. But again, moving the compressor, getting yeah. Yeah. getting the compressor powered up, and and getting all that logistics, it's it's way more difficult than it kind of. It seems like it should be pretty easy, but. When you actually say, okay, well, how do we get, how do we fill the trailer? Well, we need a compressor. How are we going to power the compressor? Is it electric? Is it, you know, and so the okay. logistics of it become very difficult on you know, flare capture. Um, now, if you've got, there, there, there are some companies that are out there that are saying, hey, we will come in and we'll capture that gas and we'll compress it. The, and that has a home but that is raw gas that's untreated. Okay. So then we have to treat it. To, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a challenge. And it's a scale thing. So with all this evolution, I mean, I mean, it, this, I mean, I, we, we truly are seeing a, I think we've seen step changes in massive evolution in the state of the frack business. Um, and I do think it's important for people to understand that electric frack fleet is primarily is, I mean, the, the innovations and the efficiencies and the gains have largely been driven, are being driven by, efficient use of natural gas on the front end from the the power generation and then your all the work on so it's it's which you guys have worked on both that and then on the pump side and on the actual frack side so that's huge um but obviously there's an impetus and we've talked about this on the co2 emission side is that from operators and at least how they talk publicly and clearly it you know speaking so much about emissions and everyone knows listening to the podcast and anyone who knows me i'm on the record for, I think there's way too much being touted on the emission side and not enough being talked about what the actual operators are doing. But that being said, there has been a big driver, and this is known, I mean, by operators pushing for, you know, wanting more electric frack fleets for emissions reduction. And I, what I thought was interesting about this paper was the explanation on really going through where you, 
what's your biggest bang for your buck on reducing CO2 emissions? And so I would like for you to sort of walk us through that, of, that if it's about CO2 emissions reduction, um, you guys obviously have a suite of products that are working within that, but how much have you, from the old stuff to what you're doing now, what's the, what's the actual reduction? Um, and you know, if this is about emissions reduction, it's great, but it's that, hey, we also have, it has to be efficient. And so to me, when, when things make sense, it's usually a fuel efficiency standpoint and a cost efficiency standpoint and a technological advancements. And oh, by the way, and because of that, we're reducing all these CO2 emissions because we're using less fuel or we're using that fuel better. Yeah, so a lot to unpack there, uh, but let's you know, take any angle you want on that. Okay, yeah. well, I, I think I think it'd be worth talking about the, the actual savings because they are um, they yeah, are important to talk about. So when you when you look at um, going from a really these because you know, two thirds of our fleets are diesel, you really think about these in a replacement mode would replace a diesel fleet. We would keep those dual fuel fleets running until the very last diesel fleet was replaced. And so when you take a, a diesel fleet and you replace it with 100% natural gas, you're talking on order, you know, depending on the price of diesel and gas and everything else, but the savings could be 15, 20 million a year per fleet. Yeah, that's huge. And so it really, it, provides a great basis yes. to start um, replacing these because you can pay for that investment fairly quickly. So that's the economic driver here. Now, if you talk about what it, you know, what happens to ESG, well, um, when we went from tier two, we moved to tier four, like we talked about, we basically were flat on CO2 emissions. So it's CO2E emissions, right. so CO2 equivalent, which would include on the on the dual fuel side, any methane that was leaked through the engine. Right. So. Which you guys can, you guys, when they do CO2E, I really like that because you put, you use the EPA standard for 25 times, the CO, the methane being 25 times more than CO2. Right. Um, so your CO2E is in, inclusive in encapsulating the methane side, uh, which I think is extremely transparent. Yeah, so we got, you know, we went from tier two to tier four. We got a tremendous reduction in particulates. We got, you know, a tenfold reduction in NOx. But really, because of everything we talked about, we were really flat on CO2E. There was no, no reduction, just it was more, more or less flat. Now, going from a tier four, tier four dual fuel, when we stepped from there to a natural gas recip, so a, a tier four engine diesel dual fuel, we'll call it around 35% thermally efficient. When you step up to a natural gas recip that we're using, that engine natively is about 45% thermally efficient. And it doesn't, you know, like, oh, 10%. That 10% really uh, equates to about a 30% reduction in CO2E um, or if you want to look at it, about a 30% reduction in fuel consumption, because really how much fuel you burn is just how much CO2 you put out and uh, fuel equals CO2 and right. then methane, the methane slip on these uh, new recips are, is very, is extremely low. So the CO2 reduction, you know, really moving from tier four to gas recip, it's, it's the, it's the jackpot. You get both right. a significant reduction in CO2 
your NOx is really flat. It, it's less than a gram per kilowatt hour on tier four. It's less than a gram per kilowatt hour on. And that's when you're, so when we think about tier four, you are able to reduce the CO2 when you're pushing as much NAC gas in as possible, right? It's 70, 30 on NAC gas versus diesel. You're still dropping your CO2, but not to the equivalent of when you're going to the, your recent, your, your NAC gas engines, that's 100% NAC gas. So you're just you're taking all that thirty percent out, and that's where the massive CO two e reduction comes in. No, the massive CO two reduction comes in in the incredible efficiency of the engine. Okay. So that's where all of that comes from, really. It, it's just that the engine is so wildly more efficient; it just burns a lot less fuel. The okay. fuel that it's burning is has a lot less carbon in it. Okay. So, ergo, we get we get this uh, this dual reduction, and then on the particulate side. Um, we get another massive decrease in particulates because burning natural gas really doesn't produce much of any particulates. So that's I, I think. Are we going to see more applications to that? Uh, I mean, we were we were kind of hinting. I was hinting at that before, but will we see more applications so that wildly efficient use of net gas on the front of that and those engines on the front end to drive this? I mean, we because it's that much more efficient on the fuel side. Are there applications outside of frack that we're going to see this? Oh yeah, I think you're already seeing it. Um, you, you, there's definitely uh, shipbuilders that are using natural gas engines. They're the, one of the engines that we looked at uh, when I was in Germany a, a few months ago was designed for a locomotive. Um, and if you think about how a locomotive, you know, one of the things about um, any any mobile application, you have to drag your fuel with you, or you have to park and bring the fuel, you know, LPI style, bring it in a, in a trailer. Right. If you've got a, a rail line and you can use a natural gas engine, you could just, you could hook up a couple of uh, LNG cars behind right. the locomotive and pull your fuel with you, and the, and the locomotive would barely notice that additional tonnage. So yeah, I think there's, there's a, some decent, a decent runway ahead for this type of technology. I do. And it seems like it, you know, and I did, I dabbled in uh, when rail was big, crude by rail was big. Um, and there was talk then, and this was several years ago, but I think the engines had not, the, the technology just wasn't there yet. Um, and now I would say that it makes me think of on the shipping side and the rail side, when you have, you know, step changes and advancements on that much more efficiency and that much less fuel, that's, that's really where the application of this, you can, you could see big places uh, where this can be used and dramatically, uh, it, w it could have dramatic impacts in diesel usage. Yeah, for, for our um, Liberty Power Innovations uh, business, we, we ordered 15 natural gas tractors. So these are Kenworth tractors that have um, the 100% natural gas reciprocating engine in place of the diesel engine. And so they have compressed natural gas tanks on board and they're How new are those? Did those just come out? Like they're, they're, they've been around a bit. Uh, they, they've probably been a little bit underpowered. Um, they're making a change on, okay. on um, those, the engine side to fix that. But yeah, these are our first 15 will take delivery of this year. Oh, awesome. That is that's a little, nice little nerdy tidbit. Um, anything else, any more on this, you know, any, anything else you want to add on this emission stuff? Um, you know, I, well, I, I don't know if there's much more to add. You know, I think the, if you, if I were to look, just 
my my perception um, over the last you know, five years, there's absolutely our customers are taking it very seriously, um, and so that is driving a change in in the industry. And they're asking for they want the latest greatest equipment. I, I think it's really you know we talk a lot about the barriers to entry in in uh, businesses like Frac. You go back to 2012, 2013, if you could get hold of some used um, frack pumps, rebuild the engines, yep. you had yep. a company. Yep. And, and really today, that's, that, there's still a, a little bit of, that there is a little bit of the market out there that is, is looking for just what's the very cheapest job um, you, can, you can give me. Really, the trend though is towards we want, we want both the most efficient, cheapest from a fuel standpoint, uh, frack fleet you can provide, and and it has to be lower emissions. It must. Well, and that's where I think the consolidation. I mean, the evolution of the industry sort of gets you to that point of. Um, I mean, I, I always think it, it's it, it is tricky on the frack side. I know you guys as a company have been known for, um, you know, and, and Chris mentions the earnings call a lot of you know our. Customers are pretty. Your customers are pretty consistent. It's not that they're they're not going. You're not, you're not flipping out all the time with with customers. So it's a long term relationship base, um, and that makes a big difference. Uh, but it also is a big difference when companies are consolidating and smaller companies. Well, particularly here in Colorado, Chevron just bought PDC. I mean, so and they weren't a small company by any means. But that consolidation also breeds. If these big public companies, uh, for right or wrong, are pushing on the emission standpoint, I personally think some of that's wrong, um, but it is what they're demanding. Now, the question is whether they pay for it. And um, and I think we're, it sounds like, I mean, the state of the industry, we're at a point where the, the service sector is finally, you know, in a comfortable position. And um, I think that is, it, it, we're in an interesting time, though, where, you know, the, the, the industry is at a comfortable position. Um, the service sector is at a comfortable position, but the industry were $71 oil. Um, and we still have all this, I mean, we still have a lot of, um, I don't want to say pent-up demand, uh, but we don't have people just ending their... Okay, so apologies for technical difficulties, um, but we were talking about, um, and trying to wrap, we're going to wrap up this podcast, and we were talking about the consolidation in the space, right? We have an evolution. Um, we're more than 10 years now into the business. I mean, shale revolution really started 2006 with gas, 2008 with oil, and it's now 2023. So naturally, the industry has evolved. Frack has evolved with that, but also operators. Um, we have big consolidation on the public side. Publics have tons of cash right now. Um, they may or may not be entering a period of M&A, big M&A, and, and buying up these smaller companies. This is happening in Colorado, so with Chevron buying PDC. Um, and so that means a few different things. Um, but it, to your point on the emission standpoint and the, what operators are asking for, these big publics, they're definitely asking for this, right? They want, a, um, they want, they want to put this in their books. Now, personally, I think it's, just, it's not, a, not enough to move the needle in the world. Um, like Colorado is 0.3% of you know, global emissions. So if every, you know, if we dropped all, you know, if everyone was using an electric frack fleet at the primo usage and we dropped all the emissions we could, it's just very little in terms of the actual output. Um, not saying that, you know, companies doing that, that's a bad thing. And it's, but I do think it's important that, you know, we think about $71 oil and this consolidation. And yes, the op, lots of big publics have lots of cash. 
we still though, as you guys know in the Permian and you work with a lot of private companies, is that there's a lot, a lot of private companies. Um, and they tend to be, they flex down when oil prices go down, they flex up when oil prices go up. And um, you know, they also contribute meaningfully to adding production and the publics are not meaningfully adding to production. They're um, keeping things you know, within, I mean, they're making money and returning money to shareholders and they're growing at three to 5%. Um, and I think, Chris, you guys mentioned your earnings call that you know, we're basically at maintenance. 250-ish frack fleets is sort of maintenance mode for U.S. oil production, which to me, if we say 12 and a half million barrels a day, that's, that's a pretty good number. I, th I think we could actually grow, but we're at sort of maintenance. But I do think there's implications for, okay, the, the business is, this is a trajectory of the business. They want this from the frack side. They want this from everyone. They want lower emissions. Um, but you guys have to be able to make money on it. And um, it has to, this has to ride the course of its commodity business. Um, so there's great benefits with that gas prices being low. That helps actually with oil prices going lower. But you know, if, if oil prices go to 50, um, and however long they would go, just let's just pretend because we have seen 50 before. Um, if oil prices go to 50, and I mean, I think we've, we're just getting a little bit caught up in the industry that we're going to be. I think we think like it's 100 and it's 70, um, but we still everybody in the industry talks like it's 100 and it's not it's 70. Um, but we have this. Pretty remarkable resiliency, and I babble a little bit on the market side, but I'd love for your take on that. I mean, you may disagree with that, which is completely fine. No, the market side, I think you nailed it. You know, one of the things that maybe to add to that is, yeah, two hundred fifty frac fleets is kind of maintenance level if we just kind of maintain there. But the wells that we drill today are producing a little bit less than the drill wells we drilled yesterday, and so the number of wells we have to complete year on year to maintain 12, 13 million barrels a day is going to increase. So the amount of, if, even if we just holding, uh, I guess holding production constant, we need to see a remarkable increase across, uh, across the industry in efficiency or we need more frack fleets. And those frack fleets, what is in demand because of the potential for uh, a shift down in the price of oil or just capture the, the savings that you can get from 100% natural gas. So they, they want, like I said, it's both. They want both. Yep. They, want, they want cheaper and they want it better. And I, I do think it's a really good point because I, 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 I push the missions too hard, but I do think 100% natural gas at these gas prices, knowing we're produce, we're gross withdrawals are 123 billion cubic feet per day, we have a lot of natural gas. So it makes total sense. And I really, I mean, I really do hope the industry, being third generation and spending my life studying it, you know, I really do hope the industry this time around and, and thus far, you know, that no one's put the brakes on. I mean, it's $70 oil, you shouldn't be putting the brakes on. But, you know, this is the, if you haven't learned the lesson yet, write it out, drill through it, complete through it, like work through it, because you can do the math all day long and you, your books look better when you drill and complete through the downturn than when you don't and you just stop. And it screws everyone up and then you guys, everybody pushes you to drop prices and then they don't wait and then you have to raise them and it's, it's a mess. Um, and the industry needs to be very forward thinking in this run. And as much as consolidation as we have, we still have so many of these privates, um, which have helped keep you know, those well completions up. And I think to your point of we have to drill, we have to continue those efficiency gains and we have to maintain And This industry has been very good at that, of being extremely progressive. I mean, the average lateral lengths we drill, I, put, I always talk about that, but 
I mean, it's, it's way more than it was. It's incrementally grows every, you know, every quarter. So we're looking at those efficiencies, but we are completing less wells in total than we were, which makes sense why we're not at 13 million barrels a day, because we're not completing as many wells as we were prior. The average productivity is holding up pretty well. I mean, we, it hasn't been smashed, so I find that very impressive because we have stepped, we have so many privates that have sort of stepped out. And um, so I always tell people I'm pretty bullish on the rock. Um, and I know you guys, this is why I love completions. I mean, you guys are bullish on the rock too. The rock has a lot left to give. Um, so I do think like, I hope people listening to this really, really appreciate that, you know, this is a, um, one, it's an incredibly fascinating business. It's hugely technically, um, I mean, there's a massive amount of technology that's in this. Um, it's extremely nerdy, but it also has a lot of running room. And um, just the stuff that you've done alone in within Liberty, I think, is, is extremely impressive. Um, but it's it's not like a, it's just not a boring business in by any means. Um, yeah. Yes, it never, it's absolutely never <laughs> yeah. been boring, you know. Yeah, for sure. And um, and lastly, I will just mention, because you pioneered the quiet frack fleet here in Colorado, um, and this is probably not the podcast to talk about, you know, Colorado regulations. Um, I, I talked about it plenty on previous podcasts, but it, it is a different environment to work in, um, and it was an impetus for you developing the quiet frack fleet, correct, to make, because we, in Colorado, you drill closer to, you drill closer to urban environments. And so we've, I've had Heidi Gill on the podcast uh, with Urban Solutions on, you know, the actual sound walls, but the quiet frack plate is literally a, um, obviously has more applications than just Colorado, but that was, that was all you, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I wish it was all me, but yeah, it was, it was, let's say it was my idea. Um, Yeah, so going back to kind of twenty. 2015 2014 the 2014 we're coming out of 2014 we started the downturn and and at the very same time uh, Colorado decided that um, well they they promulgated a rule that said we have to maintain emissions or of or basically noise sound pressures at less than 65 dBC um, at the nearest inhabited structure which in this, in, you know, we, there's a 500 foot setback here in Colorado. So the nearest inhabited structure would be roughly 500 feet away. So you have to, your fleet has to be less than 65 DBC at 500 feet. So that's, that's where we started. Um, you know, and it was, I, I think it's fair to say that we didn't think that was going to be possible. Um, but I, I, in a previous life, worked uh, in underground mining for for many years, and that was something that we worked hard on in underground mining because you're going down these tunnels, you have miners driving these big big loaders, and they the the sound bounces off the rock just maybe a foot or two away and bounces right, and so it's the the intensity of the sound was so high, and so we had to make improvements to these uh, to this underground equipment to get it. To get in compliance with MCHA. Well, fast forward, you know, 15, 20 years, here we are in in Colorado, and we said, well, we've got to make these frack fleets quieter. And everybody said, well, they're loud. That and actually, they, there there was a certain amount of people that you know when I said I, I think we can make them quieter, they, they were proud about they're proud of how loud <laughs> they were. Like that loudness meant power, and it, mm-hmm. it meant it, it meant 
America, you know, and, and so I said, well, nonetheless, uh, like it's not going to be silent and it's just quieter. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, yeah, so we, we, I went out here, we have a, we have a great fab shop. We have a, a bunch of really innovative guys out here in the fab shop. And I said, let's, let's start looking at what we could do to make this thing quieter. And we, we tried a couple things, did a proof of concept and, and, uh, kind of showed it to, to Chris and, and the rest of the executive team said, hey, I, I think we could do this. So we, we built uh, the funny, funny anecdote that we, we built a, uh, an actual prototype. And with everything we had learned from our, our work here in Colorado, we went down to Oklahoma and we built a prototype and we fired it up. And the reduction of noise at, when we say 65 dBC, Really, it's the long, it's the low frequency noise that travels really efficiently across okay. across space, and so what you want to do if you if you could do something perfect in a perfect world, you would knock out all those really low frequencies, so twenty hertz to maybe up to maybe two or three hundred hertz, knock those out, and the rest would kind of naturally dissipate because they don't they're not long lived in the atmosphere. Well, we finished this very first uh, prototype, and. We put it on the test stand and, and I measure it, and we made it louder. Like <laughs> we we effectively built a giant subwoofer. The walls <laughs> of of the enclosure were acting like a like a speaker and amplifying the low frequency. And I was like, I all right, we can't make this call. I can't call Chris Wright and tell him, hey, good news, we made it worse. No. So, <laughs> Back to the drawing board, we brought in uh, a, a guy, a, a gentleman that had worked at, at, at NASA, had been on the one of the shuttle programs, and, and was kind of an expert in reducing um, noise. And he said, "Well, you, you you got it 99 percent. It's just this one thing that yeah. you missed." And and so he was able to tweak it. And yeah, what a what a success story for us. I mean, we we took a you know, we saw kind of a 4x, 3 to 4x reduction in sound power. Um, we were kind of 103 decibels at, at 25 feet and prior to enclosing them and after we're at, at about 80. So it's a remarkable, uh, it, it, it exceeded my expectations and, and, and it, it was kind of just in time. We, we rolled out these fleets as Colorado got very serious about um, enforcing these noise right. restrictions, and we, we, of course, we saw the one of the drillers here locally got shut down from for being too loud, and so yeah, it, it you know it was a it was some a good idea, some 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 great work by a lot of engineers here at at, at Liberty, and then. And, and elsewhere, and then great timing for rolling yeah. it out. So I think it's a good example of um, the sheer technology. And I didn't, I was sort of giving props to you because you did lead it, but obviously there were a lot of uh, other incredible people at Liberty working on it. But I think it's, um, it's one of those things that should be an illustration to folks of the incredible technology and the, I mean, the fact that you're getting NASA engineers to work on this, of that this is not a boring, this is not a boring business. It's very technologically competent business um, and evolves and that there it is a constant state of evolution. 
Um, and that also when the industry gets pushed to do something, they generally respond. Um, and I mean, they, you're told to do something and you do it and it works. But I think the quiet frack fleet, I've unfortunately or fortunately never been on an, a non-quiet frack fleet. So all the, you know, frack tours I've been on have been Liberties and they are, you, you can hear, it's not like it's completely silent, but you can hear people. And I think from just a safety standpoint and just a communication standpoint, um, there's a lot of benefits to that um, for various reasons. So, you know, yes, reducing noise, but I think ap in application basis, I can imagine, you know, folks outside of the DJ saying it wouldn't be bad to have a quiet frack fleet. Um, so I, I think from that standpoint um, and the fact that you guys did it just in time and had it um, to comply is just a complete example of this industry is filled with remarkable people in engineering that engineering feats. So if there's requirements, and this is why I'm big on the regulatory side of saying lay them out and then let's go hit them. Um, but if the if the regulatory environment is is pushed to where the goal is to put the industry out of business, that's very different. And um, I just think that's that's an important differentiating piece, but a very good great technological feat. Yeah, it is. And, and you know we were also have to mention that we're incredibly lucky to develop this technology and, and, and it was millions of dollars in development to develop it in 2015 in just one of the worst environments to try to, yep. to beg for money to do uh, you know a capital project I went I remember I said Chris um, you know our CEO Chris Wright I said hey Chris I think this is a good idea I think we should do it and he said no it's a great idea and I said it's gonna cost millions of dollars and and I think it's going to work. There's no guarantee. Well, let's go do it. And he was just 100% big believer in this. And what's been interesting is, you know, I, I, I even had, you know, I, as we were developing it and as it was proving out, I had some conversations with people and they said, we don't need that. Like, it's not, we, we won't need it. We'll figure something else out. Don't worry about it. And it came out and it, all of a sudden, we went from, zero quiet fleets in the DJ basin to virtually every every fleet running in the space and yep. is, is either a, one of our quiet fleets or a, 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 facsimile, a facsimile thereof. But what's then interesting is how, like you mentioned, then other other places start hearing about it. Yep. So we, oh, well, we need this in Midland. We, we are fracking right here. We need one of those too. We give us one of those fleets and then you know, in Louisiana, oh yes, we also need that. Right. So like the ones I was thinking about this, because when I was seeing um, in Midland, I, and I say this all the time, but like go down to Midland and just, just look out the window, but drive around town because you will see rigs like right, not in the center of town, but they're certainly in town. And they've got sound walls up, just like you would see here with, I don't know if those urban solutions, whoever, sound walls, but their sound walls up. I imagine when they're fracking that, after they're done drilling, they will probably want a quiet fleet because they have the right, They've got people right around them. I mean, you have bump jacks in people's yards, but the fact that you're actively drilling and completing wells, like with businesses and t and houses around you, yeah, I would absolutely imagine that's not everywhere because a lot of the stuff, as we talked about, is is kind of out there. Um, but even then, if you had a lot of, even then, if you had a lot of stuff going on and simul ops and everything, like lots of activity and different stuff, I could imagine you might there still might be an incentive for a quiet fleet. Oh yeah, and we're definitely seeing it. We're we're seeing them pull that technology out of, out of Colorado. And we've, we've been, uh, I've been excited to see it move into Texas, move into Louisiana. But I guess my point there was, 
you know, you need an executive team that kind of, it's yeah. not enough just to have a good idea. Yep. You need a, a leadership team that can, can say, yeah, I can see where you're going. I see the, the vision. And if you, if you build some, you build a better mousetrap, you know, they, the other people start, they, 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 they want one of those too. The, and, and I think we, we will see that same sort of innovation or that same pull now with hundred percent natural gas. I think that's, um, Absolutely. you know, yeah. we, it was hard to develop it. It took a lot of work. We had to do, you know, EPA certification, all of the steps that had to happen. Now, most of those are in the rear view. And now I think we're seeing, we're right at the front end of, of that technology kind of, uh, really taking over a significant, a significant portion of frac, you know, whether, whether it's like digifrac or efrac or, um, you know, this, like what we call our digiprime or hybrid solution, you know, 100% natural gas, I, I really, I really think is the future. Well, I think that's a really good note to close on um, and thinking net gas future. I also think it's really good to point out that I think the way that um, the, that's marketed, I think, by the street or why how banks and analysts or if you're listening to Bloomberg or CNBC or reading the Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, they call that electric. And I do think it's important that, um, and this has to, and it's, I think you guys do a good job, but other folks in the industry have to do this too, it is natural gas. And the reason you have to articulate that is because that people have to be able to invest in that, right? You have to have every, all these parties. And um, that's why I'm, I'm so incredibly serious about getting uh, public companies, you know, more public companies like yourselves to be honest about this stuff. But there isn't an earnings call you could listen to last quarter that wasn't leaning in on that gas. So you're 100% right. I mean, this, um, and I, I even think that that would have been the case, uh, whether that gas prices were two bucks, two, two and change, um, because these, these investments and this thinking came long before, um, you know, they were actually happening well into net gas being 650 on average last year and 10 bucks in August last year. So this was going on long before. And this is the whole to me where I get excited about at least you guys uh, and some others looking long into the business of that this is, you know, this is a commodity business. It is a boom and bust business and we have cycles. And, you know, if you can look through them, um, this is there's huge opportunities. Um, and I, I think we're, I mean, we're obviously going into recession and things are going to be messy, but there's also huge opportunities in that. So um, thank you very much. I really appreciate it, Roy. Thank you, Trisha. Appreciate it. Awesome.